Good morning, everyone. I got some, uh, I guess I needed some evidence. I, I knew that fall was, had arrived, but I was looking out as we were greeting this morning, and I saw fallen leaves on the lawn and thought, oh, it's really here. The summer is really gone, and uh, we've got to adjust to the new realities. And uh, some of you have been looking forward to this, and uh, others of us will... will uh, uh, we'll, we'll tolerate it and, and get used to uh, fall and, and all, that's, uh, all that's coming ahead. Uh, I was reading this past week about Fran, uh, Franz uh, Reichelt. Uh, definitely not, not a new story, uh, but it was back in February 4th of 1912 when Franz Reichelt uh, went up the Eiffel Tower and tried to prove something tried to prove something to his, his credit critics, maybe to prove something to himself. Reichelt was an Austrian tailor, and he had sought to develop a parachute. And uh, he, he had gone through a number of tests in preparation for this day. There was another uh, parachute inventor by the name of Gaston uh, Hervieux, and he had, he had talked to talked to Reichelt and, and looked at his design, saw what he had done and said, this parachute that you've, you've designed, it won't work. It, it just, he, he just saw problems with it and uh, told him so and, and wanted to persuade him against uh, going ahead with his, with his test. Modern per- parachutes use 700 square, f- uh, 700 square foot of fabric and typically aren't deployed less than 250 feet uh, of, of altitude. Uh, Reichelt's uh, parachute design used about half of that, less than 350 square foot of, of fabric, and he was attempting to test it, not at 250 feet, but at 187 feet. And people said, That's, that, doesn't, that doesn't look like it's, it's going to work. Uh, Airview wasn't the only one who told him his parachute wouldn't work. There was a team of experts came in. They looked at, they looked at what he had done, uh, applauded his, his, his effort, his, his uh, determination, but said, just uh, scientifically, it doesn't look like your, your, your design will, will hold up. It, it wasn't just other people that were telling him this, though. His own tests were not all that positive. Uh, he tested his parachute using dummies at first. The dummies crashed. He tested his own parachute by jumping 30 feet into a haystack. Haystack. He crashed. Then he tested his parachute jumping 20 feet without a haystack. He fell. Uh, he crashed. And this time he broke his leg. But he figured the only problem, the problem wasn't his parachute. He just wasn't up high enough. And thus the climb to the top of the Eiffel Tower. He was determined, climbed to the top, and up until the last moment, everyone thought he was going to use a dummy to, to test out his parachute. He had had such, such failure up until that point, no one would dream that he would actually jump himself. At the last minute, he announced that was his plan all along. Reichelt jumped off the Eiffel Tower and fell for four seconds. He accelerated as he went down. And when he hit the ground, uh, he was traveling at 100 kilometers an hour. Died on impact and made a a six-inch dent in the ground where where he landed. 
Reichelt was probably a lot smarter than most of us here. I, I know he's a lot smarter than me. I, I, I wouldn't know where to start if I was to try and design a parachute from scratch. He's a smart guy, very determined guy. Unfortunately, dis- despite being a very intelligent, talented, determined guy, he had a fatal problem with wisdom, fatally unwise. And uh, when, I, when I read about Reichelt's story, thinking about him and his talent, his potential, but, act- but also his profound lack of wisdom, I thought, I think there's part of Reichelt that is a metaphor for, for our generation. When we lived in Japan, it struck me that and I didn't realize this at the time, uh, until that time, other parts of the world are still pursuing wisdom. Other parts of the world still value and seek after wisdom. Uh, in kindergarten uh, in Japan, right across the country, without ever really being, uh, ever, ever uh, having to tell people to do this, children begun, begin studying Japanese proverbs. Uh, t- children will read right through elementary school big, thick books of ancient proverbs that uh, come with these colorful illustrations and little descriptions, but memorizing proverbs is a national pastime for children. It's just just an, uh, uh, an unstated understanding that young people should learn from the wisdom of those who've gone before us, and that all of us should be in a pursuit of wisdom, that we don't have to learn all of our mistakes from, I'll, I'll learn all of our wisdom from our own mistakes. We can learn from other people. But I, as I thought about that, I thought it's, that's not a prominent theme in Canada. It, it wasn't a prominent theme for me growing up to, to seek after wisdom, to try to grow in knowledge that has been passed down. Instead, many of the children's stories we prize are typically of children who become heroes of the story, and they become heroes by ignoring tradition, often breaking with tradition, ignoring the parental figures in their life, and succeeding masterfully anyway. That, those, those, are, those are often the stories that we like to hold up. We don't teach Proverbs to children much anymore. Instead, we like to stress self-discovery self-expression. And like Franz Reichelt, we love freedom. We want to do it our way. And we, we believe that that is valuable and helpful. And I think it's impacted people's faith. I think that Christians today are less interested. We don't, we don't think like this. We're not telling ourselves this. But I think just culturally, we have uh, taken on some of, of, can't help but take on something of what we live in, and we are, as, as, as a church, less committed to the pursuit of wisdom than previous generations. We're better ex- at expressing ourselves, I think. We express ourselves well in, in small groups. Uh, we express ourselves very well in, in worship. We, we express ourselves well in social media. But the pursuit of wisdom is not something that we're as adept in. We study the Bible less. We read fewer Christian books. We memorize fewer verses. And as a result, I believe we are less wise. And that's a problem. 
that's a problem. Uh, ask friends for Eichelt. He'll tell you, uh, if he could, that that's a problem. Wisdom and your lack, a lack of wisdom is, is a big problem in your life. So there's a book of the Bible that I'm convinced that our generation needs more than ever. Uh, a book that contains 3,000-year-old, time-tested, God-ordained wisdom that we desperately need. The book of Proverbs is a treasure trove of insight into effective living, written by the God who designed our lives and who desires for us to walk in wisdom, and, and he knows how life works best. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you to turn with me to uh, Proverbs chapter 1. We're almost in the center of the Bible when you open up Proverbs. And I'm going to be reading from uh, verse 1 down to verse 7. It's really the introduction to the whole book. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, the first thing this passage teaches us is that God's gift is his gift. uh, God's wisdom is a gift to be sought. God cares enough to give us wisdom to live our lives. But it's, it's, it's a gift that we need to receive from him and actively seek out. Wisdom is God's gift to be sought. Verse 1 starts with the inscription that these are the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, the king of Israel. Now, Solomon is famously known as the king who wanted to be wise. He was a king who recognized his need of wisdom. He inherited a great kingdom from his father David, but he knew that on his own he didn't have everything he needed to lead it effectively. He He didn't have have the understanding. He didn't have the insight and he needed help and he sought it from God. 1 Kings 3.9 contains that famous prayer where he says, give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this? Your great people. Again, it's a sense that he knows the task is too big for him and so he looks to God for the wisdom, the direction, the insight, and the guidance to, uh, to, to serve as he, as he ought. And the text says, it pleased the Lord that Solomon ha- had asked this. There's not a lot of prayers in the Bible where after them, there's a lot of prayers where God says, he, he, God answers the prayer, where God brings an answer to the prayer, but there's not a lot of prayers where somebody asks for something and God kind of steps back and says, Oh, that was a good one. Like, what you just asked there, I- I'm really pleased with that. That, that brought joy to, to God. And, and you see in, in the way that God answered the prayer, it showed his pleasure. God gave wisdom to Solomon beyond measure. God honors the humility of a person that 
recognizes they don't have it all figured out and they need help from God. They need wisdom from him. God so blessed Solomon with wisdom that he became famous for it. 1 Kings 4.30 says that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. He became famous and people would come to him to, to just to hear him expound on the wisdom that God had given him. God's blessing on Solomon's prayer was intended as a, an appeal to all of us. God intended that through the centuries, people would look back to that prayer that Solomon asked and, and God's great pleasure in that prayer and how God richly responded to that prayer and it would be a call to each of us in whatever capacities that we, we find ourselves in to recognize our own need of wisdom, to recognize our need to ask God, and as we do, to remember he's a God who is pleased to give that wisdom. If you look at verses 2 to 6, you'll notice that five times the, lar- the, the line starts with the word to, to do this, to do that, to do this. And, and it's, it's giving us a sense of, of, of what this book that we are going to dive into together, what, what it's seeking to accomplish, what, what its purposes are. We're being given a series of things the book of Proverbs accomplishes, and it says it's given to us to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing. It, the word wisdom kicks off the list, and it's a very important word in the book of Proverbs. It's a word that means skill, but, but deeper than that, here it's a skill in the art of, of living well. It's a skill in the art of godly living. It's the ability to, uh, to uh, take the, the truth of God's word and, and apply it wisely and skillfully to the situations of life. Wisdom teaches us how to speak, teaches us what to say. Uh, wisdom teaches us how to manage our, our, our finances well. It, it teaches us how to manage, manage our, our families well. It teaches us how to steer through difficult relationships, how to guide ourselves in those areas where m- may, maybe there aren't laws and commands about, about, about those things, but Wisdom helps guide us through. It gives us principles by which to steer our lives and to do so effectively. It's the antidote for the stupid inside all of us, that stupid voice that will, like Franz Reichelt's stupid voice, guide us to do things that can often be painful and destructive. I think we need God's wisdom more than ever. But if you look at the passage, you realize that God's wisdom, although it's a gift, it needs to be sought. It needs to be sought out. It, it involves doing something that's become more and more difficult for us, frankly, and that's reading. Because God's wisdom is given to us in a book. It involves the humility and desperation needed to set aside time to seek it, to read and meditate on the wisdom that God has given us. Verse 2 says that the Proverbs here are to know wisdom and instruction. It also mentions other action words like to understand and to receive. 
And the idea is that some, some effort will be involved. That if we don't actively seek to know and to understand and to receive, that although God has provided wisdom for us, we will not ultimately receive it. it it'll be a, a well-cooked meal sitting on the table that we never end up eating. And God's wisdom will elude us. Now, if I was preaching this sermon 20 years ago, I would contrast God's wisdom with the main competitor to that, and that would be man's wisdom. And, and 20 years ago, that was best expressed in the self-help movement. You would find people of all ages looking for uh, that book on, on the, the six tips to do that, this and the seven tip, tips to be ex- successful at this. And, and, and people were broadly reading self-help books, people giving tips and strategies and helps on how to be a better this or a more successful that. That was 20 years ago. But that self-help movement, I don't think that's the main competitor to God's wisdom anymore. The wisdom of humanity is no longer the thing that most vies for our attention against the wisdom that God would give. Most people under 30 aren't buying self-help books anymore, and a new alternative is taking taking its place. One writer who is really excited about this new movement, he's a lot more excited than I am, uh, one one writer uh, describes a change like this. He says, The old world of self-help is dying like a slowly falling giant. If you look at the shelves of the old self-help section, they're filled with books on how to win friends, achieve success, and get more done. Instead of defining life on their own terms, they came to the conclusion they were broken and needed fixing. So they went about the work of improving themselves rather than, and this is his, his, uh, the, the new, new idea he's excited about, no longer going about the work of improving ourselves rather than what we should be doing, he says, creating our own rules. Thankfully, the world of needing to fix ourselves is slowly fading away. And a new guard of people are radically embracing who they are, living on their own terms, is quickly emerging as the dominant force. And then he concludes, this is an amazing time to be alive. The the idea is here that in the past, really old-fashioned people, they looked at their lives and thought, boy, what a mess we are. Uh, we're, we're, We're broken and messed up and... And we need to, to, to fix ourselves. We need, we need self-improvement. And the, the Bible would largely agree with that conclusion and say, yeah, that's the problem. You need to go to God to get the help. But they weren't doing that. They were going to other people to get the help. But the new wave isn't, isn't asking that question. They're saying that, that's an old-fashioned way of looking at things. To say that you're broken and you don't have the answer, no, that's not the answer. How you are is amazing. Like, you, in the past, we would call that broken, messed up, and, and needing self-improvement. No, no, that's old-fashioned thinking. You are incredible the way you are, and let's celebrate it. And, cre- and if you feel like you're, in the past, they would have said you're breaking rules, let's just make up new rules, and, and, and it'll feel like we're keeping them all. Like, this, this is a new way to live. This is an exciting time to be alive. That's, that's frankly, the new competition to God's wisdom. The, it's, it's the greatest 
influence on you and on me. Anytime we come and we're confronted with Scripture, and the Scripture says, from as God looks at this area in your life, guess what? You're wrong, and the consequences are dangerous. And our temptation is to say, it's just, who's to say I'm wrong? I'll make up my own rule, and now I'm right. And there are no consequences in life. I don't think that's an amazing time to be alive if that's, if that's the, your, your mindset for living. And my fear is that we're going to be picking up the pieces from a lot of Franz Reichelt type of thinking in our, in our generation. So the Bible calls us neither to create our own rules nor to fix ourselves with human opinions, but to look to him for his wisdom. It calls us to God's gift of wisdom, but he also asks us to seek it. But seeking God's gift of wisdom isn't like seeking to learn about accounting or biology. It's, it's different than that. Biblical wisdom requires us to examine our heart. It's aimed at changing our lives, and so it needs to go beyond our intellect. It involves some reflection on who we are. Biblical reflection, biblical wisdom requires us to examine our heart. Now, in this passage, we're introduced to four caricatures, and they come up again and again and in Proverbs, so it's helpful to kind of fix them in your mind. It's important, as God seeks to guide and shape who you are based on his wisdom, you need to continually not only be learning, oh, this this is God's wisdom, this is God's wisdom. No, you're doing that, but you're also examining your heart and saying, who am I? compared to God's wisdom and, and how does that, how do I need to change and to, to be shaped by his wisdom? So we need to know who we are. Now in verse 4, uh, one of the first characters is introduced. It says that Proverbs can give knowledge and discretion to the youth. A youth in the book of Proverbs is someone who is young enough to lack experience. It, it's not defining a particular age group, um, but it is people who are, who are young and particularly lacking in experience. Prophet Jeremiah at one point, for instance, said, I don't know how to speak for, I'm only a youth. He said, I, I just, I haven't figured it all out yet. I just, I, I haven't had a, enough, enough experience in this. Proverbs are written for people like that. People who just aren't sure what to do. Just haven't had enough, uh, enough uh, teaching or, or, or life experience to, uh, to know how to make wise decisions. Proverbs are designed to keep you from learning everything from your mistakes. You you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to make all of the same errors that your parents and your grandparents did. You you can learn something. You can learn wisdom that will guide and protect you. And the implication is, if you're a youth, and if you're a youth here this morning, you can learn Proverbs. You don't have to wait until you're old to figure these things out. The book was written for you. Another kind of person, though, is mentioned in verse 4. It's a person Proverbs calls the simple person. Now, the simple person is not exactly the way that we use the simple person, and that person's a little simple. Like, it's not not talking about the simple person uh, so much in terms of their intelligence. Proverbs, it says here, gives prudence to the simple. But the word simple is, is an interesting one. It's a word that means 
like hopelessly open-minded. Uh, Proverbs 14:15 is prob- probably gives the, the, the best uh, uh, help with this. Proverbs 14:15 says, "The simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. The simple believes everything. Like, they just take it in. What, there's just no, some people have no filter going out. This person has no filter coming in. Whatever it is, whatever they hear, okay, I believe that too. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, I'll take that. And, and there's no filter. They just take it all in and believe anything. Hopelessly naive. A simple person is open to everything but not firmly committed to anything. Because you, you ultimately can't believe everything because things are, are, are different. Some things are, are uh, the opposite of, of, of each other. So a simple person is naive and easily swayed. A simple person lacks conviction, won't make firm truth commitments, won't draw the line in the sand. A simple person is always keeping his or her options open. And so as you're reading through the book of Proverbs, and even as we're looking at this passage this morning, you're asking yourself the question, am I, am I what the Bible calls a simpleton? Am I kind of just open to everything, but not really having strong convictions about, about any of those things? Proverbs calls us to move past our simpleness, and it, and it will help us, if we, were, if we will listen and respond to its message, it will help us to do that very thing. Third character that's introduced at the end of this passage is the fool. Verse 7 says, fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, there can be religious fools and irreligious fools. But unlike the simple person who's open to truth but never commits to it, the fool just rejects God's truth. It just is like this to, to, towards God and, and his ways. When it says a fool's despise wisdom and, and instruction, it's describing the fact that a fool doesn't see value in wisdom, doesn't, doesn't treasure wisdom, but just thinks, I just don't have any time for that. Like that that's, uh, just, just looks down at it, uh, doesn't, doesn't value it or have time for it. Fools can hear lots of sermons, but always conclude, I, I know better. I, I, this, this isn't for me. I I've got, a, I've got this figured out. I don't need to change. I don't need to respond. I, I've got this figured out. Proverbs twelve fifteen says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. And so this, this mindset of a fool is someone who thinks they've got it figured out, don't need any help, thank you very much. And not only do they do that to you, when you seek to correct them, but they do it to God whenever he speaks and seeks to bring wisdom. The fool always thinks he knows better, always thinks he's okay the way he is. Fool can't be corrected, can't be taught, can't be guided, can't be steered. The fool will do what he'll do, and he'll do it on his own, own terms. Franz Reichelt couldn't sway him. He had his own way. doesn't matter who tried to talk him out of it. He's going to do it the way he wants to do it. Fool can't be warned either. There's no urgency about their soul or their eternity. Proverbs 1.32 says, For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroy them. 
complacency of fools, destroy them. Fools are complacent. The, that that complacency, complacency is, is fatal. They'll hear warnings. They'll hear warnings of hell even. He'll hear warnings of, of an eternity of separation from God and decide, I, I'm going to be okay. I, I'm all right. I, 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 don't, I don't need that. I, I don't, I'm not listening to that. They'll hear warnings of life consequences and assume that whoever it is, they must be talking about someone else because the path that I'm on is right. I, I've got this figured out. The fool is too proud to ever receive God's wisdom. The fool always knows better. The fool always has a better idea. And so as we go through this passage, as we go through the book of Proverbs, if and when you see the characteristics of the fool in your life, it is God's appeal to you, his urgent call to you to repent and to listen. He still, he still cares for you and love, loves you, reaches out in compassion with a desire that he could somehow, as so many of Franz Reichelt's friends tried to do for him, tried to dissuade him from that path, tried to keep him from doing something that would bring about such incredible harm in his life. The final character in this passage is the wise person. Verse 5 says, Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. It's interesting that there's no, no character in this passage that says, and, and there's this, this like super knowledgeable person, and they can just coast because they got it all figured out. Like if, the, if you thought that was you, like that there was some special category, doesn't exist in the book of Proverbs. If you think you're wise, you, you're the person that is growing and increasing in wisdom, growing in knowledge. The wise person is obviously also not the other characters, right? So the wise person uh, has a little more experience and truth under their belt than the youth that doesn't have the experience. Or... The wise person has more conviction and discernment than the hopelessly open-minded, simple person. The wise person has more humility to receive both warning and correction than the fool. And in verse 5, the wise person is called, as we said, to increase in learning, to keep growing, to keep seeking after wisdom, to keep valuing it, keep treasuring it. And so the appeal of Proverbs is with the question, are you wise? Are you wise in the way that you respond to God's wisdom? Are you wise in the way that you respond to correction? Are you wise in your pursuit of the wisdom that God would provide? Or do you despise wisdom? Are you just keeping your options open like the simple person? Wisdom is God's gift to be sought. He provides it, but we need to pursue it. Wisdom calls us to examine our heart because it doesn't just reside here. We need need to look and reflect on ourselves in order to be changed. But wisdom is rooted in a right relationship with God. It isn't just about how much you study. It, It is how you are ultimately oriented to your creator. Wisdom is rooted in a right relationship with God. Verse 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Elsewhere, we've got right up on our banner here from 910 that 
Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is where it begins. This is the center. In calling it the beginning, it's not saying it's, it's a start that you just move on from. Well, this, this is the beginning, and once you've got the fear of the Lord figured out, then you can, you can go on from there and, and get everything else figured out. Bruce Waltke describes it like this. He says, what the alphabet is to reading, notes are to reading music, or numbers are to mathematics, the fear of the Lord is to attaining the revealed knowledge of this book of Proverbs. It's, it's the center. It is the engine of this life of wisdom, fear of the Lord. But what is it? We get help in understanding this strange term from a strange thing that Moses says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 20. Listen very carefully. It's up on the screen. It says, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Just slowly process that. So don't fear. First he says not to fear. There's a fear that can can uh, that, that he doesn't want you to have. So don't fear. And then he says, there's this fear that's going to be a big help to you. I'm going to give you a fear. And this, is, this one's good. And don't do this other one. It's saying that a right fear of God helps you actually not to sin. That, that God gives you this, this good fear of him in order that you may not sin. Fear of God is a shield against temptation. And and so often the reason that we fall into sin is that we don't have a proper fear of God. We don't have, we we have light views of a grandfatherly-like figure. And and when temptation and and sin comes, we have no no sense of of strength and the majesty and the holiness of God and we are, are, are weak and unguarded against temptation. Our view of God is too weak to stir any sense of devotion or allegiance. Now, in, in everyday conversation, we don't usually talk about fear in a positive sense. Fear, usually, we, we've been exposed to enough horror movies that fear always seems to mean being scared. And it's always a negative thing. But this word fear is different. I've talked to uh, a good number of Japanese fishermen who have lived through tsunamis. And they love the water. Uh, Even after the great tsunami that hit the Japanese coast, they, they couldn't wait to get back to the water. They make their living from the water. They love and enjoy the water. But they have experienced enough of the power of water that they have a healthy fear of it. They have a healthy respect and awe for the power of the water, and they don't trifle with it. They don't take it lightly. And, and that's v- very much what this, uh, this word fear here means. It, it's, it's accompanied by love and delight and joy in God, but it's with a recognition he's not to be trifled with. He is not to be taken lightly or casually. That's what the fear of the Lord is like. And so the question is, is that, the th- is that the kind of attitude that you are nurturing in your own heart towards God? Is that how you see God and how, how you 
view your relationship with him? Is there a fear of the Lord in it? Not a fear instead of love, not a fear instead of delight, but a fear that accompanies those things. Is a fear of the Lord one of the characteristics and orientations that you're seeking to nurture in your children towards God? Do they have a healthy fear of him, a healthy awe and respect and recognition that he is holy and when he speaks, his voice is like thunder, is like a voice out of the hurricane. It's a voice of power that is to be not trifled with or taken lightly. We approach him as the one who is holy and recognize how far we've fallen short. We see him as judge and realize that without a pardon, none of us would stand. And we would cower before him, genuinely afraid if this fearful, awe-inspiring God wasn't also great in mercy, full of love. Because the God who is to be feared also loved the world, so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent his son to rescue us from our sins, but we receive his pardon through faith. We recognize he is all-powerful. He is holy God. He is to be feared above all things. And yet this God who is great in power loves us, loves us so much that he sent his son as a rescue for us. Fools will hear the the invitation of this God, but are too proud to think that they need God's help. The simple will hear an invitation from God and say, I believe that too. But they believe it in kind of a democratic, I believe all that kind of stuff and I'm keeping my options open kind of way. But the wise who fear the Lord will hear the invitation, receive the pardon by faith, and seek after this God for the wisdom that only he can provide. By faith, they'll rejoice in him. They'll delight in a God that is so powerful and yet so great in love, so faithful, rich in mercy. They pursue God's wisdom as if it were gold or silver because of their awe of the one who speaks. So let's look to him in prayer now. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we confess our casual thoughts about you. Too often we treat you more like an uncle than the powerful creator that you are. And that light, casual attitude often leads us into sin. We make foolish decisions and starve ourselves of your life-giving wisdom. So forgive this, our foolishness. Thank you for the gift of wisdom in your word. Give us hearts to seek it and to respond to it with urgency. I pray for anyone here this morning, Father, who is drifting in complacency. Would you rescue them? Would you move and stir in their heart? I pray for those who hover around your truth without landing anywhere. Build deep convictions in them. Build deep convictions in all of us. Give us a discernment to live wisely. For we ask you in the name of the one who is the wisdom of God.
In Jesus' name.